Well, we are continuing our study through 1 Timothy, and we are also continuing to look at the verses in 1 Timothy 2, verse 8 through 15. In this book, in this letter, Paul is giving guidance to Timothy as he pastors the church in Ephesus at Paul's request. Uh, there had been problems with people teaching strange doctrines. Timothy would be required to address that problem while also emphasizing the need to hold on to sound doctrine with the biblical gospel at its core, as well as emphasize the need for prayer. Those things have been emphasized in a number of ways. A further application that Paul is giving Timothy is found in this chapter. It has to do with the roles of men and women in the church. There may well have been problems in the church at Ephesus on this issue, but Paul doesn't primarily base his instructions on the situation in Ephesus. He bases his instructions on the scriptures, specifically the Genesis account of creation. So let's read 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, <clears throat> but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. There's a number of principles uh, from this chapter that we have already talked about. Um, I'll mention them again this morning because they're important to giving a proper context, especially to verse 12, which speaks about uh, the woman teaching or having authority. So our first main point is this. God created man, male and female, alike yet different, with each called to live a life of godliness as Christian men and women. Genesis 1.1 tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We're told later in Genesis 1 that on the sixth day God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Then the next verse, God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. So these truths are some of the most basic things that we see communicated in 1 Timothy 2. God created man, male and female. They're alike, but also different. Paul addresses the men, and then he addresses the women. There is a foundational understanding that because of how God created man, Everyone fits into either, into either the category of male or female. This fact is just fundamental to the order that God has given to his creation. An uncertainty about this basic reality brings just heartbreaking chaos and confusion to the lives of many. It also brings chaos and confusion to the culture at large when this is not held to. In 1988, there was a statement published by some 
evangelical leaders meeting in Danvers, Massachusetts. It came to be known as the Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Well, the second affirmation of that statement says this, Distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find an echo in every human heart. So as much as people try to deny this truth within our hearts, we know it's true. Thinking about this really reminded me of two books that Robin and I bought many years ago as resources to help us in raising our children. They are full of projects to help your children grow somewhere, somewhere, grow and mature into godly men and godly women, and they're thick. I'm going to read some, I'm going to read some of the, the table of contents here. What these books recognize is that there are all kinds of ways where children are alike have the same needs, the same things that need to be emphasized. But there's a book for boys and there's a book for girls. So there's a recognition that there's things that are different too. I'm going to read the contents for this one. is called Plants Grown Up. It's Projects for Sons on the Road to Manhood. Book is thick, so you can guess this is a long table of contents. First, dealing with leadership. Learning to justly judge and discipline situations. Overseeing household affairs. Leading the family in worship. Setting a godly example. Exercising initiative. These are all individual projects to be worked on. Making godly decisions. Planning and organizing. Influencing the community. Honesty. Courage. Bible skills. Scriptural manhood. Doctrine. Teaching skills home skills, self-control of the body, self-control over the appetite, self-control over the thought life, self-control over the tongue, self-control in finances, self-control of the emotions, self-control in manners, conquering laziness, fleeing temptation, faithfulness in performing a job, faithfulness in the church body, perseverance in trials, finishing what we start. consistently meditating on God's word, hiding God's word in our hearts, daily communion with God in prayer, honoring God's day of rest, obeying God with the tithe, obeying God and his delegated authorities, recognizing and repenting of sin, seeking and accepting counsel from our Heavenly Father, being content with God's sovereignty, developing godly relationships, protecting the young and the weak, showing hospitality, Providing for those in our care, giving to those in need, communicating in a godly way, serving others with a cheerful heart, growing, giving up our own desires, showing patience and forgiveness, sharing the gospel, loving a wife. It's a good book. Here's the contents for Polished Cornerstones. Projects for Daughters on the Path to Womanhood. A godly woman, a reliable woman, an honest woman, a loyal woman, an attentive woman, a loving woman, a submissive woman, a peacemaking woman, a humble woman, a pure woman, a patient woman, a devoted woman, a diligent woman, a skillful woman, 
a thrifty woman, a woman who uses her time wisely, a wise manager, <coughs> a woman who feeds her family well, an organized woman, a goal-oriented woman, a woman who can make things grow, a woman who handles money wisely, a studious woman, a woman who memorizes God's word, a prayerful woman, a self-disciplined woman, a woman who seeks wise counsel, a woman who is committed to her church, a determined woman, a hospitable woman, a merciful woman, an evangelistic woman, a just woman, a prudent woman, a domestic artist, a gracious woman, a modest woman, a respectful woman, a supportive woman, an enterprising woman, a thankful woman, a trusting woman, a courageous woman, a woman who controls her tongue, a woman who trains her children, a, a teaching woman, a good steward, a reverent woman, a joyful mother, a family-centered woman, an exemplary woman, a truly beautiful woman. Now, there's a question here. Is it okay to address boys and girls in some things that are more pertinent to whether they are a boy or a girl? Or is that sexist? Many in our day would say, this is horrible, that you've got two books, one for boys, one for girls. But based on the fact that God intentionally created man, male, and female, I believe this kind of thing is biblical. I believe it's right. And Paul does a similar thing here in 1 Timothy 2. He has an overall theme that says that every Christian should be pursuing a godly life, a life in which godliness is evident in every aspect of how we live. But then he also addresses things that are especially relevant to a Christian man and things that were especially relevant to a Christian woman. We saw last week, godliness is devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to him. That's God's call to every Christian man and every Christian woman. Our second main point is this. <clears throat> God's creation of man and the fall of Adam and Eve communicate principles that affect God's order in the church. Paul bases his instructions in, uh, to Timothy uh, on the role of men and women in the church, on the biblical account of creation and the ultimate fall of Adam and Eve as well. First thing he points out is this. God in his wisdom created Adam first and then created Eve as the perfect complement. The verses we read about um, God creating men, male and female, make it clear that this was his wise purpose from the very beginning. It's one of the most wonderful things about God's creation. God created man, male and female. In addition, in Genesis chapter 2, it makes it clear that God created Adam first and Eve second by design. It was on purpose. It was done in such a way that, that God emphasized that Adam needed a complement. There was nothing in all of creation that could fill that role, and he was not self-sufficient. So God created Eve using a rib from Adam's side. He did it this way for at least a couple reasons. Uh, first, to show that Adam and Eve were equal before God by taking a rib from Adam's side. 
we see that Adam and Eve are made of the same substance, so there's an equality there. And second, with the rib being taken from Adam's side, it further emphasizes that Eve is neither superior nor inferior to Adam, but they're on the same level. It's also true, as we said, that Adam was created before Eve. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul understands that God did this to reveal some things about the order that he has designed between men and women in the church. We'll get to the details of that in a moment, but it's important to understand this. It's all part of God's good and wise creation. So the next thing that Paul calls our attention to in 1 Timothy 2 is what Genesis 3 says about Adam and Eve falling to sin in the Garden of Eden. We'll sum it up this way. Satan deceived Eve into believing that she could become like God and thereby overthrow God's created order. Overthrow God's created order. <coughs> Paul reminds us of this in verse 14. He says, It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. When, we know that when God created Adam, he gave him this command. He said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it you will surely die. This command was given specifically to Adam before Eve was created, so it was his responsibility to communicate it to her, which he did. Satan approached Eve as a serpent, in a serpent, and questioned her about what God had said. She was deceived into thinking that taking the forbidden fruit would make her like God. She expected it to make her wise. Adam was standing beside her when it happened, and not only did he say nothing, but he sinned as well by eating the fruit. Satan's temptation was an attempt to overthrow God's created order. It's interesting that he starts with an, using an animal about as low down to the ground as you can get, appealing to the woman who then gave it to the man. The whole idea here was to overturn authority, overturn the created order that God had made. And, of course, God had ordained Adam to be the head of mankind, the representative, and so that's why his sin caused every human being born afterward to be plagued with the sin nature. This sin was in reality a declaration of war against the sovereign king of all. Paul brings this up in 1 Timothy because he apparently sees the same thing being encouraged by false teachers there. A challenge to God-ordained authority was taking place. He addressed it at the very beginning of the book, by affirming God's call that gave him authority as an apostle in the church. He spoke of the need to pray for kings and all in authority in the early verses of chapter 2. And now he's talking about authority in the church. Greg Gilbert made this comment. He said that when Paul understood what was being wrongly taught in Ephesus, he heard the hiss of the serpent in the garden. In other words, it was the same issue. So he makes it a point to clarify the different roles that God ordained for men and women in the church. Now, it's also important here to note what John Piper has to say about this point. He's not the only one to say it, but I thought he's, he says things very well. 
Here's what he said. In the Bible, differentiated roles for men and women are never traced back to the fall of man and woman into sin. Rather, the foundation for this differentiation is traced back to the way things were in Eden before sin warped our relationships. Differentiated roles were corrupted, not created by the fall. They were created by God. Eve's sin is not the reason that the woman is called to submission in verse 11. God designed differing roles for men and women in the way he created men and women in the beginning. But sin has definitely brought challenge and even corruption to those roles. Going back to the Danvers statement on biblical manhood and womanhood, it deals with those corruptions. I'm just going to read what it says here about that, these distortions that were brought into the fall between men and women. First, it says, in the home, the husband's loving, humble leadership tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. Now, you guys are smarter than me. I had to look up servility. Most of you guys probably know what that means. Servility, see if I can read my writing here. It's excessive willingness to serve. And he says, that's a distortion. In the church, sin inclines men toward a worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility and inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. So sin has corrupted our roles as men and women, and we have to be aware of that, but it does not define them. God did that at creation. Okay, let's look at some applications to these principles. These facts of the creation narrative confirm three applications for men and women in the church, uh, at least what's mentioned in these verses here. First, let me read verse 11 and 12. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. The way I would understand these verses is described as being complementarian. <clears throat> complementarian teaches that God created men and women as equals with gender-defined roles. That has by far been the majority view of the church for the past 2,000 years. The competing view that's come up more recently, especially in the 20th century, is described as egalitarian. I'm probably not saying that right. They agree that God created men and women as equals, but they deny the gender-defined roles. They would say true equality requires equal ministry opportunities for both male and female. They believe, they believe the submission of women in marriage and restrictions in Christian ministry are inconsistent with the idea of equality. Now, there's multiple ways that egalitarians have attempted to explain the verses that we're looking at this morning because these are the verses 
that are especially troubling if someone is a Christian and trying to use an egalitarian view. So let me mention some of those ways this has been described. Some have just said this, Paul was wrong. Paul did not understand the Genesis 2 account of creation correctly, so he was wrong. Problem there, of course, is if we have the authority to pick and choose where Paul was right and when he was wrong, you've got a bigger issue, and that's with the inspiration of Scripture. Others have said Paul's use of the phrase to teach or exercise authority in verse 12 actually means more to be domineering or controlling. So in other words, a woman could exercise authority as long as they weren't being controlling. Well, the connecting word or, to teach or exercise authority, that connecting word requires both teach and exercise authority to either be both positive or both negative. Um, negative in the sense it's a bad thing, you'd be domineering, positive, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's, an, it's an important thing in the church. The problem here is to teach that word is viewed positively, not negatively in the New Testament, and specifically in the pastoral letters. It's always in a positive sense. So you can't put, you can't really, it, 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 there's, not, there's not really uh, exegetical evidence to consider that negative instead of positive, as if it's just don't be controlling. Another idea is that when Paul says, I do not allow this, in verse 12, it's in the present indicative. So he's just speaking of a specific temporary situation. But Paul often speaks in the present indicative to give universal instruction. And that view really ignores the fact that Paul bases his words on the God's unchanging order in creation. Others use Galatians 3.28 to erase virtually what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 here, which is a wonderful verse that we're going to look at a little bit later too as well. It says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this is a great statement of the spiritual status of every believer in Christ, but it does not do away with gender distinctions that are clearly described in the Scripture. One other idea that I've heard used before is that is, if there is a Christian woman who feels that God has called her to be an elder, to be a pastor in the church, then she must be allowed to follow what God is calling her to do, what God is saying to her. The problem is God's not going to lead in ways that are contrary to his revealed will. So, those are, and there's some other ways. I picked some of the ones that are the more common ones to talk about. Okay, let's look now at three applications for men and women in the church from these verses. First is this. The scriptures exhort women to submissively receive sound biblical instruction in an orderly fashion when the church gathers. Verse 11 actually says, quietly receive. Verse 12 says she should remain quiet. I do not believe... This means that a woman must be completely silent at all times. I don't think that's what Paul's trying to get across. 
it's helpful to consider Paul's similar words in other places to try to understand better what he's getting at. Over in 1 Corinthians 14, he's addressing the confusion that was happening in the church and some other uh, worship services. There were people there, especially one of the issues was speaking in tongues and things were being done out of order, uh, no, not interpretation not being done, confusing. Well, in verse 34 of 1 Corinthians 14, he also tells the woman there to keep silent. But that's in the context of the confusion with the speaking in tongues in particular. But what we especially need to notice is just three chapters earlier in, verse, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about there that when a woman prays or prophesies, prophesying was more of a thing that was going on then, she needs to have a covering. I'm not going to get into what that means, but I, what I would do want to talk about is this part of it. And once again, he refers to the order of creation there. The one thing I want to point out here is that if a woman is praying or prophesying, she's making a noise. She's saying something. She's speaking in some way, in some fashion. So there apparently, there was a place for that. It just needed to be done in an orderly way. So in order to be consistent, I don't think that Paul means in 1 Timothy 2 that a woman can never speak when the church gathers. There are times to ask questions. There's time to make comments, share insights in Bible study groups. There are times to pray in prayer meetings. But everything needs to be done orderly. There should not be being argumentative in a, in, a real, in, a, in a boisterous kind of way with what's being said. Now, at the same time, I'm going to point this out. In Acts 17, the Bereans were um, praised because they were making sure that whatever Paul was teaching was consistent with Scripture. Every man and woman needs to do that. You need to do that with me today. Whenever, anytime you hear a, a sermon or whatever you say, you're supposed to think, is that what the Bible really says? Is that consistent with what the Scripture says? We all have that obligation, whether you're a man or a woman. So, but as far but it, it's generally better to have the conversations when there's disagreement, maybe at home or in a private manner, instead of kind of uh, causing it, bringing everything up in, in a public setting. So, as we said last week, I think the main emphasis here is that a Christian woman is called to be teachable. No matter how far along we are in our faith, there's always the need to humble ourselves, to listen with entire submissiveness when the scriptures are rightly being taught. Okay, the second application is this. The scriptures instruct women not to preach the scriptures in the gathering of the church, but there are other important opportunities for a godly woman to teach. Verse 12 says, I do not allow woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. The word teach is to impart instruction, to instill doctrine. It's used to describe really the careful and authoritative transmission of biblical truth. In the pastoral letters, teaching always has to do with a sense of authoritative public discourse or public doctrinal instruction. So this is actually a prohibition on preaching. This does not mean that women are not competent to preach. That's not what he's saying. The issue is not competency. The issue is God's created order and how that's to be applied in the local church. That's what the issue is. But this does not mean that a woman is never supposed to teach. 
That isn't true. Mothers have one of the most important teaching jobs in the world in teaching their children. And a person should, should never look at that as if it's some sort of inferior kind of teaching. Not at all, because really, as we saw in, see in verse 15 here, Paul reminds women of the fact that God has chosen them as the means for bringing children into this world. They are key to the success of the home. They are key to the success of their children. And when mothers don't take on this God-given role, the children suffer for it. In the church, there are opportunities for sure to teach children in multiple ways. There's opportunities to teach other women. In Titus chapter 2, Paul exhorts the older women to teach, train, encourage the younger women. And then we have verses like Colossians 3.16, which says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. This is one aspect to our teaching. We even teach one another when we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together in worship. In Acts 18.26, we see that Priscilla and her husband Aquila took Apollos aside to teach him the way of God more perfectly, more accurately. They realized when they heard him teach that there were things he did not understand correctly. So they talked with him in in a private way, and explain those things to him. Priscilla had a big part in that. So there are clearly other important opportunities for a godly woman to teach. Third application is this. The scriptures teach that the office of elder slash pastor in the local church is limited to qualified godly men. Verse 12 says that a woman was not to exercise authority over a man in the local church. With the next chapter... Just a couple verses after this, the next chapter speaks of qualifications for elders in the church. It's clear that Paul means that the position is only meant for qualified men. It's not at all that women cannot live godly lives. Of course they can. They've been exhorted to do that in this chapter. Both women and men and women are called to godliness. Pastor is a position in which authority is exercised to lead and govern in the local church. So based on the fact that God purposely created Adam before Eve, Paul is telling us that this position is reserved for a man that the church has deemed to be qualified for that position. So these are the basic principles and applications, really, of these verses. But there's more I want to say here. So our third main point is this. Within these guidelines, godly women are called to important complementary roles in the local church. One thing that must not happen is for ladies to feel that they are in some sense second-class members in the church. That is not at all the case. I am certain, I mean, I'm not saying this just to be dramatic, but I am certain that this church would, con- would cease to exist if it were not for the contributions of the women in this church. It just would not continue. It can't. So let me reiterate a few biblical affirmations. First, godly women are to look for opportunities within the church to build up, 
to build up their brothers and sisters in Christ. There are about 25 one another commands in the Bible, and they apply equally to Christian men and women. Now, many times, of course, how we apply those is going to be application may look a little different for a man, it may look a little different for a woman, but they're given to every believer in every church. Let me list them for you. The Bible says we are all to love one another in godly ways, God-honoring ways. We're to receive one another. We are to greet one another. We are to have the same care for one another. We are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, doing this out of humility and unselfishness. We are to forbear one another. We're to confess our sins to one another. We're to forgive one another. We are not to speak evil of one another or murmur against one another or bite and devour one another or provoke one another or envy one another or lie to one another. We're also told to build up one another. We are to teach and admonish one another. This is a way that we help each other understand and apply truth in our lives. We're to exhort one another, be servants to one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, and pray for one another. That's quite a list. And it's, and it's, it's meant for every member of the church. Men and women alike. It's also interesting to note that Paul commended a number of Christian women as being co-workers in the work of ministry, especially the ministry that he was a part of. For example, we know that churches met in Mary's home, Mary, who was the mother of Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. We know that there was a church that met in her home, in Lydia's home, in Chloe's home, in Nympha's home, in Priscilla and Aquila's home, I mean, just a huge ministry for the church to host, host, be the hostess of the church meeting in the home. Paul also pointed out a number of women for their significant contributions. In Philippians 4, Paul urges Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. There were some problems that they were dealing with, and he was acknowledging that. But in the very next verse, he speaks of them as women who shared his struggle in the cause of the gospel. He valued highly their contribution. In Romans 16, 12, Paul says, Greet Tephina and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. All three of these are women who are talked of as being workers for the Lord. Godly women were and still are vital co-workers in the advancement of the gospel and the strengthening of local churches. Second is this. The Bible tells us that godly women are to use their spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts to minister to their church family and help others grow in their faith. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks of, of course, the need for all believers, men and women alike, to use their spiritual gifts in serving one another. I'm going to read several portions here from 1 Corinthians 12, first verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> it says, And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord, varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all person, 
to each one is given the, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So as believers use their spiritual gifts, God works in the lives of those within the church through the people using their gifts. Pick up in verse 14. For the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason, any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason, any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And then it continues on. So no matter what our position, no matter what our contribution to the church is, it's important. It's necessary. There are no second-class members. There are no people who can go it alone also without help from others. Every Christian needs the local church. Every Christian needs the men, women, boys, and girls who are a part of that church. And no matter who you are, you are important in helping other people grow in their faith. Paul also about, talks about spiritual gifts and the growth of the church in Ephesians 4. I'm going to read verse 16. He speaks here of Christ, whom the whole, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together, by which each joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. That causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The church needs both men and women to use their spiritual gifts to minister to their church family and help others grow in their faith. Now, finally, I want to call attention to a verse that I mentioned earlier in Galatians chapter 3. It's Galatians 3. Um, I'm going to read verse 26 to 29. Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So the main idea I think we need to see here is the last point. All believers, men and women alike, are equally in Christ and equally a part of God's household. Genesis 3 reminds us that we have all inherited a sin nature from Adam. Men and women, as a result, are all inclined towards sin from the very beginning of our lives. Men and women alike are all guilty before God and therefore deserving of his wrath. But the good news is that the Son of God took on human flesh. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 2.15, the promised Savior was born of a woman and thereby came into the world. He lived a holy life. He died a sacrificial death for sinners on the cross. By his resurrection, he accomplished a full and certain salvation for all men, women, boys, and girls who will put their faith in him. And in Christ, all are equally forgiven. 
In Christ, all are equally righteous. In Christ, all are equally brought into the household of God. Curtis Vaughn, one of my seminary professors, made this comment on Galatians 3.28. He says, It is not that distinctions of race, social standing, and sexuality are totally obliterated among Christians. They're not obliterated. But as barriers to fellowship, they have no place in the Christian community. They must not be a barrier to fellowship. We are all one in Christ. That is the most important thing about the identity of every Christian man and woman. Lord, we thank you very much for your word. We thank you for instructing us in things that is important for us to know, not just individually, but as a church. I thank you that you don't spare us. You even share things that are sometimes maybe take us aback as we look at how it was said or what's said. But Lord, I thank you that you are the God who is wise. I thank you so much for the privilege of being your creation. I thank you that you created us either a man or a woman. I mean, that just seems so basic, but it's just such a blessing, and I thank you for it. And I want to thank you especially for our Savior, because we all need a Savior. And I thank you for being a part of a church, being a part of the church, and then being a part of a specific local church where we all need each other, and we all just so so need each other, no matter what our circumstances in life are. Lord, help us to continue to grow in our own faith. Help us to continue to grow as a church. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, the key to all this is the one who was born of a woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is the only possible salvation for any of us. If you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, a prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I have not measured up to what I know is right and wrong. But I thank you that Christ Jesus did come into the world to save sinners. And I want to, I want to receive him as my Savior. I commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off. Or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray.